Thank you, Amanda. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we're, we're starting a new sermon series next week. I'll just give you a little bit of lay of the land really quick kind of for what we're doing. We're going to be in Matthew. We've been in Matthew for the last few weeks. We've been looking at Matthew's genealogy and actually focusing in on the women that appear in his genealogy. We talked about Mary last week. We'll be in Matthew 2 this week. We're going to continue in Matthew. We're just going to skip over to a portion of chapter 5. And then actually we'll skip to the end toward, uh, toward Easter during Lent. So we'll be in Matthew between Christmas and Easter. We'll just be kind of uh, doing a few different things in Matthew. So that's what's on the horizon for us. Uh, we are in a passage this morning that talks really about the announcement of a king. And it got me thinking about this story, uh, a guy who really is not kind of on our public uh, consciousness anymore, but used to be quite a bit as uh, Lance Armstrong. Lance Armstrong, the cyclist who won seven Tour de France victories, uh, but was later found to have um, been doping, been taking performance-enhancing drugs for all of those victories. If you remember, in 2013, he gave an interview to, to Oprah Winfrey. This was really the first interview he gave when he came out and admitted what was going on. And really some fascinating things, I think, that he said in that interview, particularly as what they reveal about how worship works. Listen to, to these quotes from Lance Armstrong. He said, My ruthless desire to win at all cost served me well on the bike, but the level it went to was a flaw. That desire, that attitude, that arrogance, I was a bully to those around me. I tried to control the narrative, and if I didn't like what someone said, I turned on them. It was win at all costs. Winning was king for Lance Armstrong. Winning was what he worshipped, and everything else in his life revolved around that, and he was willing to sacrifice everything else, friends, family, teammates, the truth, in order to feed that idol of winning. Well, we've got a passage this morning that really talks about worship and what it looks like when the king is announced to us. Are we those who are going to come and bow down before him in worship, or are we going to respond in a different way, much like Lance Armstrong did? We're in Matthew 2, so if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Matthew 2, chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the king was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down, and they worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. 
And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word this morning. We ask you to open our ears to hear it. That you, as we read in Hebrews 1, would reveal Jesus to us. That we might see, that we might listen, that we might be brought to come and kneel to worship. Lord, we soften our hearts and loosen our grip on the things that we hold so very tightly to. So that we might come and see who you are this morning. A king who's been proclaimed as the king of the world. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Well, this is a passage about the proclamation of a king. We're in chapter 2 of Matthew. And Matthew really has spent his whole first chapter building that case. That a king has coming. We saw his genealogy that shows us the lineage of this King Jesus coming in the line of the great King David. This is great David's greater son, as the Bible often says. We show, uh, he showed us even the strangeness of that genealogy through the particular women that he chooses to highlight. And then we listened last week as he told us about the birth of this king. Weird, lowly, interesting birth. And we see now that this king is announced, and he's announced very broadly, but there are some really different responses. And it's interesting, I think, for us, we need to hear more often that Jesus is king. Uh, We hear very oftentimes that Jesus is a really great guy. We hear oftentimes in our culture, almost overwhelmingly people in our culture would say, Jesus is a good man. Jesus is a great teacher. Jesus is one who has come to teach us not only through his words but his actions. And all of those things, of course, are true. But Jesus is no less than a great man and a great teacher, but he is so much more. And one of those things that he is so much more is king. Matthew goes out of his way to proclaim Jesus as king to us and to the world. And when we look at this passage, we see three different groups of people who hear that proclamation and respond in three different ways. Uh... We see Herod who responds with contempt. You you see the scribes and the chief priests who respond with complacency. And then you're introduced to these strange figures, the Magi, who respond in faith. So let's dig into those guys and see what the Lord is teaching us through these three groups of people or individuals and what we are to learn about what it means to come and to kneel before the king. The first person we're introduced to is this guy named Herod. Herod is, uh, he, was, he was the king over Judea and over uh, Israel, over that part of Israel uh, during the first century, right at the turn kind of of the century. Herod the Great kind of was his title and he did a lot of pretty great things as far as what he did in the country to build things up. He, he built walls and he built the city up. He built this enormous palace and these fortresses to defend himself and he rebuilt even uh, God's temple. So when you talk about Herod's temple, it's something that was actually built kind of more gloriously. But don't let that fool you into thinking that Herod was uh, a pious Jew, because he also built a lot of other temples to foreign gods. He just liked building stuff because it made him look, made him look good. He got to say, look at these wonderful things that I've built. In fact, his, his palace, his fortress, was the most glorious thing uh, really around. 
Herod was an interesting guy. So remember last week we talked about kind of the history of Israel and how they really had lived under the rule of some other country. So even though Herod was calling himself king, even though he was given that title king of the Jews, he was a puppet king. Because the Romans really were the ones in charge. In fact, it was the Roman governors, the emperor, who had appointed him as king. He didn't earn this right and he didn't even earn it by birth. They were given, they, he was given the kingship over Israel more like a governor. He was kind of working under their charge. Herod was also really not a very nice guy. He was not your good example of the kind of guy you'd want to be or the kind of king that you would want to have in your country. In fact, he was so concerned with protecting his own power that he killed not only his wife, but also several of his sons. Herod was a man who was afraid of someone else coming up and taking his power. And so when he hears of this king who is proclaimed, this Messiah who is proclaimed for hundreds and hundreds of years, his response is contempt. Herod's uh, response is a lot like Lance Armstrong's, right? He controls the narrative and he stamps out, snuffs out anybody that's in his way. He just happens to have the power to do that completely and finally by killing them. The interesting thing about Herod is that he was meant to be actually something totally different. The kings of Israel were actually meant to be stewards of what God had given them. You see throughout the Bible, you see throughout the Old Testament, what it means to be a leader in Israel, what it means to be a leader of God's people, is to be a steward of the things that God has given you. A steward is somebody who actually uh, governs something that is owned by someone else. So the the steward of a piece of property would be one who takes care of the property even though they don't own the property. Somebody else owns it, but they care for it like it's their own, like they own it. That's the way that the king was supposed to be in Israel. In fact, for 500 years we've had this proclamation that the Messiah is coming, the great king is coming. Someone is coming who is going to actually rule in justice and in peace and in righteousness. And the thrones of Israel were supposed to be keeping the throne room warm for that Messiah to come. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the the Lord of the Rings movies, and yes, I said movies because I haven't read the books, and I don't intend to read those long books, but the movies I like, okay? And in the last one, The Return of the King, uh, there's this great scene where there is a guy who's called the Steward of Gondor, and he looks like a king, and he's supposed to be protecting this city, this great human city, and he's acting like a king, but he's not really a king, he's a steward. He's supposed to be there waiting, kind of keeping the throne warm for the king to come and making sure everything is, everyone is protected and everyone is flourishing so that when the king comes, actually he can come and take his kingdom gloriously. But what happens in the book is the same thing that happens, or what happens in the movie at least, is the same thing that happens to Herod here, is that when the king shows up, the steward does not like it. He gets very threatened. He does not like his power being threatened. He does not want to hand over power to someone else. He doesn't want to give the rightful kingship to the rightful king. And so he freaks out and he fights and he ends up actually killing himself because he can't take it. He can't take his power being taken away and given to someone else. You see Herod acting very similarly here, don't you? You see him acting, he's supposed to be a steward, but he's acting as one who is controlling the narrative, protecting himself at all costs. And he responds then with contempt. In fact, if we would have read on in that chapter, you'll see that the way he responds is, um, is utterly tragic. It's murderous. He has thousands of male babies killed just so that he can make sure that he's tried to wipe out this little king that might come and threaten his power. 
He has no problem killing children, killing his sons, killing his wives. Because he is threatened and he wants to hold on to that one thing that he worships, which is his own power and control. Now, it's easy to build a straw man of someone like Herod or someone like Lance Armstrong. But the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 3 that we are all alike under sin, that we have all fallen short of the glory of God, that we are all prone to go and worship created things rather than the Creator. And so when we look at someone like Herod, it should actually turn a mirror to us. He is representative of human brokenness, of our desire, of all of our desire to control, to hold on to power, to get what we want out of life, and to sacrifice anything else in order to get it. This is so oftentimes my pattern. I like things in my life the way that I like them. I like my leisure. I like things kind of neatly controlled. And I like things to be the way that I want them to be. And when somebody kind of upsets that apple cart, boy, does it drive me crazy. It makes me mad. And I want to start controlling the people around me. I want to start manipulating the narrative so that it can move back into my narrative and my story. Because what I worship... Unfortunately, so often, is my own leisure and pleasure and control. It's a good question for all of us to look at Herod and say, how are the ways that we, when we are faced with the coming of the king, when we see the announcement of King Jesus showing up in the world and in our lives, how do we respond like Herod? How do we respond with contempt? Where really what we want to do is we want to just kind of snuff it out. We want to snuff out anything that says you need to come and kneel. Because that means that if someone else is Lord, I'm not. If Jesus is king, I'm not king. How do we deal with that in our lives? There's a second group of people here. And one that's just mentioned pretty briefly in this story that doesn't get a lot of press here in Matthew's story, but I think is really pretty fascinating. Look here at who Herod calls to him, first of all. He says, in verse 4, Assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, the chief priests and the scribes of the people were two groups uh, who were uh, religiously oriented but also politically influential groups. The chief priests were really the people who were in charge of the temple. They ran uh, the religious services, but they also held some pretty big political weight. It had become kind of, a, um, kind of an aristocracy of sorts in Israel. And the scribes were really the theologians of the day. They're the ones who kept track of, of, the, of the Bible. They're the ones who taught it. They're the ones who really made sure that God's word was kept and taught. So you have these people who, one commentator I read, uh, translates this, the senior pastors and the Bible teachers of the day. Herod brings together the senior pastors and the Bible teachers, the people that knew God's word and that understood what was happening. He asked them, where is this supposed to happen? This whole idea of a Messiah showing up, where is it supposed to be? Which, first of all, also reveals to you just who Herod is as a king who doesn't know his Bible. But it also shows you that the, uh, the scribes and the, and the chief priests, they don't sit around for a while and talk about it and say, hmm, maybe we should call a council about this or a study committee and study where this is going to happen. They know it. They know it cold because it's really plain. And they tell him, here's, here's what God's word says. The Bible says that the Messiah is supposed to show up in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is about six miles from Jerusalem. Let me tell you what you don't see in this passage. You don't see the scribes and the chief priests saying, Bethlehem, the Messiah, 
That's like a half a day's journey. Let's go. You don't see that. You don't see them saying to Herod, yeah, the Messiah has come, and guess what? That means something for you. That changes the way that you need to act. You don't see that happening, do you? In fact, the response of the chief priests and the scribes, the response of the religious authorities of the day, the response of kind of just the old churchgoers of the day, is just, huh, it's complacency. They would much rather the status quo. They would much rather the governance of a king who kills his family in order to protect his power than they would upset the apple cart at all and announce the kingship of a new king who has come to rule in justice and righteousness. And so they just kind of let it go in complacency. We don't ever want to assume who's here on a Sunday morning. And we do want to hope that there are people from many and diverse backgrounds here on Sunday mornings. That there are people who are uh, not familiar with the way that church works and are here because they are intrigued by Jesus. I hope that that's some of you this morning. But also I do know that there's a lot of us who are here who have been sitting in church pews like this or church chairs like this for a long time. For most of our lives, we have a very uh, long-standing tradition of being in church, and we understand how church works. We are kind of the old church guard. This is helpful for us to sit and look and say, how does the old church guard act here? This is probably the major temptation, I think, for old church guard people. For people for whom Christianity has just been uh, in the air is that when we hear the proclamation of the king, we just kind of say, all right, no big deal. I'll just kind of add that to the mix of be a good husband and go to work, do my stuff. Here's my little faith piece. I'll go to church. Maybe I'll read my Bible every now and then. But friends, there is a difference between knowing the truth and actually worshiping the king. I know that I need to eat my vegetables. I know that I need to exercise. (laughs) It's good for me. But doing it is a different thing. I know that when I get up and I spend time in God's word and I spend time in prayer that I draw close to him. But that doesn't mean that I always do it. Knowing it and doing it are really different things. This is the example that we have here of these chief priests and scribes. People who know. They know it backwards and forwards. They know the Bible. They know the truth. But they don't act on the truth. So here's the second question for us to deal with. Where are we, and especially those of us who are, have been Christians for a long time, where do we know the truth but refuse to act on it? Where are we seeing Jesus as just kind of, eh, one of those other things that we get to add to our lives? Because the truth is, when Jesus shows up as king, he shows up to displace, to displace everything else. That's the way that worship works. It's one thing that displaces all others at the center of our core being, at the center of our lives. That's the way that worship is supposed to work. It's not in something that just gets added to the mix, kind of to the soup of our lives that make us happy people. Where, when God is pronounced as king, when Jesus is proclaimed as king, do we respond with complacency? Here's the third group of people that we get to look at, though. 
And this is really fascinating. The Magi, the wise men, as it might be written in some of your Bibles, they're the ones who actually come and act very differently. They come to Herod and they say, where is this one who's been born king of the Jews? Where is this one who's been born king so that we might come and worship him? So that we might come and lay down our gifts before him? Now these men, these magi, first of all, I'm going to ruin every nativity scene that you've seen for the rest of your life here. Um, There are probably not three of them. If you, you may have noticed when we were reading the Bible, they are not numbered. It just says wise men, or the Greek word is magi, from the east. Uh, there are three gifts listed, and so because of that, I think the tradition in the church has just been to say that there were three men. There are probably more like 20, 40 maybe, um, of these guys. Um, so that totally messes up the nativity scene. Um, and then also, they probably showed up about two years later. When Herod ends up killing children, he killed uh, children, all who are under two. It took them a while to travel to Jerusalem, so they probably did not visit ba- uh, Jesus in a manger. In fact, Matthew tells us when they came, he was in a house. So that messes up the nativity scene, too. So just in case you were hoping to come out of here uh, with some sentimental nativity kind of uh, theology this morning, sorry, I just ruined it for you. But these are fascinating men. Uh, the, the word magi, it, it, it really is one who is, um, you know, astronomy is a study of the stars. We have astronomers now who study the way the stars work, who study uh, which stars are where and uh, the science behind them. And then you have uh, astrology, which is really more of kind of what do stars mean? You know, when stars are kind of gathered together in this way or, or what does it mean if you're born and this constellation is in the sky? That's astrology. Well, in the ancient world, those two things were kind of combined. So astronomy and Astrology, we're all kind of together into one discipline, and that's what these guys do. They study the stars, and they study the stars not only to know where they are, but to know what they mean. And through their study, now whether that's through uh, charts that have kind of led them to a particular year where the stars are in, in one sort of way, or through the miraculous appearing of a completely new star, they have been led to this man, uh, to this, this place, Bethlehem, and to this baby, Jesus. It's also interesting, I think, that this word magi, um, it's where we get our term magic from. The Greek word magi is where we get magic. Um, And it's used throughout the New Testament in almost exclusively negative terms. Whenever the Bible talks about this word magi, it's talking about people who who really are idolaters. They're the people who worship things that are created rather than the creator. They're the ones who are practicing divination and sorcery and magicians, those kind of people. And they're actually talked about in the New Testament uh, in very negative terms. But isn't it fascinating that God brings these men, these idolaters, from very far away... East, they're probably from what would have been then Babylonia, what we would know now as Iraq. 500 to 1,000 miles from Jerusalem, he brings them to see the arrival of the king. And what do they do? They come and they lay their gifts down before him and they lay their bodies down before him and they kneel and they worship. Isn't it fascinating what Matthew pictures for us here? The insiders... The king of Israel, the Bible teachers, the pastors, the ones who knew the scriptures the best. How they respond to Jesus is either in murderous contempt or in just meh, just nothingness. But the outsiders, the ones who have come from a thousand miles away, they're not Jews. They're Gentiles. They've come from very far away. They don't worship Yahweh. They worship the stars, but they have been led by God to see Jesus. 
It's amazing the way that this happens. He's shown us this already in the way that he's laid out these women in his genealogy. And of course, if you read through the gospel accounts, you'll see this happening to Jesus all over. The ones who should know better, the insiders reject Jesus and the outsiders accept him. So here's a question for us, first of all, is how do we see ourselves? Do we see ourselves as those who, without the grace of God, are outsiders? Are those who are as far away from Jesus as Iraq is from Jerusalem? Because the truth is, that is us, in fact, even further. Uh, Ephesians says, Paul says in Ephesians that those who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That those who were outside of his family have now been brought inside his family, have been made insiders. Friends, that is us. None of us grew up in first century Israel. We are far, far, far outsiders and the grace of God has come to us. The news that Jesus the King has been born, the news that a new king has come to reign and to make things new, that news has reached us. So how are we going to respond? How will we respond to the news of a king who's shown up? Will we respond by simply protecting all the things that we desire in our lives and controlling the narrative so that, so that we don't lose those things that we love so much? Will we respond simply in complacency by adding Jesus maybe as a little dash uh, uh, to our lives just like anything else? You know, here's some youth sports and some good reading material and here's Jesus. Or will we respond the way that these men from miles and miles away did? That the Lord brought them to this place that they said, we've come so that we might worship. We've come so that we might bring the things that we have, the valuable things that we have, and lay them before this king. We've come so that we might rejoice exceedingly with great joy and come and kneel before him. That's the question for us this morning. How will we respond when the kingship of Jesus is proclaimed to us? Because the other character, of course, that's in this story is this baby. This king who has been born in amazingly regular and low ways, right? He's born in this little no-name town. He's born in in a stable amongst the animals. He's born to this middle-class family. His mom is a no-name teenage mother, and his stepfather is a carpenter. And at the same time, we have angels proclaiming his birth. We have... Men coming from a thousand miles away to come and see this new king who's shown up. We are showing, we are shown that this baby born in a manger is the king of heaven. The angels are saying so. And he's the king of the nations as well. The magi are saying so. He's the king who has come to rule in us. He's the king who has come to save, to lay down his life so that we might have it, but also so that we might lay down our lives for him. How is he calling us to kneel before him today? I'm going to close this in prayer, and then we're going to have a few minutes to just kind of chew on that question a little bit. Let's pray. Lord, it's good to be reminded of you as king. We live in a time where that's a bad word. We live in a time where um, our whole political system, our whole culture uh, has been worked in order to rid ourselves of a king. But Lord, that's not what our heart needs. Our hearts need a king. 
We need a good king. We need you as our king. Lord, will you show us what it means to, to let go of our idols? Or to let you displace them? So that we might come and worship you this morning. And throughout our lives. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.